Hi folks, this is Christian Haynes, Managing Editor at Gamers with Glasses, and I'm happy to bring a special episode of the Gamers with Glasses show. This one on Squid Game, created by Huang Dongyuk, uh, who's the writer and director of that. And today I'm going to be joined by Edsel Javier Citron Gonzalez, who's a contributing editor at Gamers with Glasses. Hello, everyone. And I'm also joined by Seyoung Kim, who is a professor of cinema studies at Colby College. Hello. It is great to have you both on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No, we're thrilled. Uh, Say is our special guest and uh, has some expertise in Japanese and Korean cinema. Uh, so really thankful for him being able to come on. Um, so Squid Game, first of all, I should say, spoiler warning, we're going to be spoiling this show. If you haven't seen it already and you're sensitive to spoilers, I would stop listening now and come back and listen later. Squid Game is a Korean survival drama. It was released on Netflix on September 17th, 2021, uh, globally. The writer and director, Huang Dong-yuk, uh, is best known for his film work, including Silenced and The Fortress. Uh, the Fortress is actually the only thing I had seen before, uh, but Silenced, from what I hear, is a very moving and maybe kind of hard to watch uh, film. Uh, the show is not just the most successful Korean drama in English-speaking countries ever. It's also the top television show more generally on Netflix, uh, so quite an accomplishment. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the translation issues uh, with the show, but it's worth noting that uh, with this show coming out, Netflix has charted a threefold increase within the U.S. alone of people watching shows with subtitles, uh, which is kind of just interesting to think about. And we can talk about, you know, what that, you know, what's happened there and why that might have happened. Um, some folks also attribute that to the success of Parasite. Uh, with the Oscars, but um, I think there's probably also a more general context there. In an interview with Variety, uh, Wong discussed uh, the show and its genesis as follows. I wanted to write a story, he says, it was an allegory or fable about modern capitalist society, something that depicts an extreme competition, somewhat like the extreme competition of life, but I wanted to use the kind of characters we've all met in real life. And part of the reason we're discussing the show in the Gamers with Classes show is because of the centrality of games in it and the way it riffs on the literary and video game genre of the Battle Royale. We're thinking of, you know, PUBG or uh, Player Unknown Battleground, Fortnite, and at this point, a dozen others. Uh, you know, some great, some not so great, uh, but it's certainly one of the most dominant video game genres and has its roots, arguably, uh, in East Asia as uh form not only a video game but also of literature and film and television so i just wanted to start off kind of simply with what folks first impressions were and seth maybe you could start us off what your first impressions of the show were um surprise um you know even even though this is stuff that i study i was just really taken aback at how quickly um the show spread like wildfire and in that sense, I think there was already a sort of built-in incredulity with um, contemporary Korean media in, in the 21st century and how quickly cinema sort of um, moved internationally, but especially with music. Um, and a lot of sort of observers and critics, myself included, had actually kind of marked 
you know, it, it depends on who you talk to, but that Korean cinema kind of starts to taper off actually around like 2005, or in my case, like around 2008, that that's this period where it starts to get really interesting, but it, it doesn't really last too long. And, and I know that might be controversial for some people. Um, but that's why Parasite, when when it just hit, and it hit like wildfire, it was it was kind of shocking. Um, and And people, again, like K-pop or, or, you know, going back to Gangnam style, just trying to make sense of, or BTS, like more recently, like how, how did this happen, you know, um, and, and especially I think domestically, how do we replicate it, right? And, but that's the thing about um, kind of meteoric success like this is that you can't really predict it, right? You can't really, you can't really design it, um, kind of like if you think about, like you can't really um, plan a cult, a true cult film, right? And so, uh, you know, Parasite hits when it does, and I, I, I'm absolutely in agreement that it sets the stage for um, Squid Game, and I think that Squid Game, you know, quite simply, like, couldn't have happened in the way that it happened um, if it weren't for Parasite, and then, you know, all the cinema that, that I'm really kind of interested in, which is around the turn of the century between Japan and Korea. Um, and so that's, you know, really been sort of my focus and, and concurrently also thinking just about, I think it's a real testament, not just about East Asian cinema and media, but also the absolute sort of hegemonic power that Netflix has that this just it kind of comes at, like these things kind of come out of nowhere, you know, I had heard I'd see no marketing, no advertising you know, in the usual routes, nothing, no, no sites that were, were reporting on Squid Game before it actually hit the platform. I see it come up, you know, in my, in, in my feed. Oh, this looks kind of interesting. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. Um, so that's something that I, you know, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of people talk about too much, but, but it's kind of on, on the front of my mind too. But what about you, Edsel? Yeah. Um, gosh, Lots of thoughts with Squid Game. Like, I really love the series for many reasons. It really hit home for me a lot because, you know, being a current graduate student and thinking about um, poverty and debt all the time, um, especially during a degree, um, and basically talking to other um, of my graduate peers who also chose, like, you know, to gain student loans just to not live in poverty during our degree, it really hit home in sense of, like, how well the series talked about that. It's a big topic and really thinking a lot about how the series was so inviting to each of its main characters. Like in episode two, for example, we got a chance to know lots of the characters' situations at home, um, the reason why they were interested to participate in the Squid Games in the first place. And that kind of made me feel like very empathetic towards a lot of them, which really affected me um, in the later episodes when unfortunately um, they were eliminated. Um, but yeah, I think Squid Game really did a good job in a variety of reasons. I especially love the concept of children's games, um, being a children's and young adult scholar, for example, that really caught my attention in many ways, like how the play with memory and also design took a role throughout the series, like each of the games were designed as a playground, kind of like to bring that childhood memory. Um, and it's interesting to think about it because for those players who were eliminated, that childhood memory was their last moments of life, basically. So for me, it like fought a more interesting wave of thought in that as well. 
and I especially like the design of the facilities themselves and the way like not only how the players were set up but also how they were basically treated and basically um told to keep going with the games that kind of like reason like why will they keep going every time if they know what's going to happen so it kept me like wanting more but also made me interesting like how all the characters as a collective or as a community reacted with each other and then how they kind of dispersed throughout the series as well yeah those are great points from from both of you i mean i think i had that same kind of Netflix tells me to watch something and I watch it kind of uh, effect there. And I have to admit, I haven't been even paying attention to Netflix much lately because I've been finding their, for lack of a better way of putting it, programming uh, a little lackluster of late. Uh, and what I have been watching actually has mostly been French shows that they've been picking up. So actually mostly international television, I would say. Um, lots of French. My partner is a French professor as well, so that doesn't hurt. Uh, but this stood out and they put it on their front page so you know they had some high hopes for it there's something about it. i'm guessing they probably tracked the success of the battle royale genre they probably knew how many of their people you know their subscribers had watched uh the japanese battle royale when it was on netflix at various points um so i'm guessing it was primed right this wasn't completely random though i think it was somewhat unpredictable and writing on you know, I, I think a long history, sometimes submerged, sometimes pretty obvious of the adaptation or the incorporation of Korean popular culture within the United States uh, and elsewhere. And so, you know, it just, I found it utterly compelling. And I'm not somebody who loves violent shows, and yet I couldn't stop watching. And I think a lot of it was also, Ed, so what you were saying, the way in which it does focus on you know, poverty, on debt, on inequality, um, on the ways in which we cultivate fantasies about overcoming all of those things, right? And how we attach our hopes for upward mobility, for getting to a better place in our lives, and the way in which those fantasies often serve us poorly. What uh, the late scholar uh, Lauren Berlant once called cruel optimism, right? This like the way in which we get kind of married to these fantasies of betterment, of bettering ourselves or our social stations. Uh, but those same fantasies can actually stick us in the worst places, right? They can make us vote to go back on or decide to go back on a battle to the death, uh, you know, situation as in the case of Squid Game. Um, and maybe in real life, I don't know. I'm not sure how people would actually decide in these contexts. Uh, and one of the things I was struck with, and I think this is something that uh, is notable, is the way in which I had seen the battle royale as a trope, as a motif, or as a setup in a lot of different media, in comics, and in uh, movies, and in uh, you know, video games. But something about long-form television and these longer episodes and the way in which it allows itself to follow characters and to follow uh, the action into their lives and out of their lives and back into the sort of arena really, I think, distinguishes us from a lot of other battle royale uh, setups. Um, it allows to have a kind of very intense psychological focus, but also to focus on the politics of things in a really explicit way. So, 
you know, this is a story in which you've got the main character uh, is in kind of dire financial straits uh, and, you know, he's gambling at various points. Uh, this is Young Gyun. Uh, he is trying to support his daughter who, you know, he's uh, divorced and doesn't have custody of his daughter, but he does see his daughter somewhat regularly. And so he's trying to, you know, establish a relationship with her. Uh, you also see some other main characters that are in, you know, maybe seem like they would be in a more promising situation, notably uh, Cho Sung-woo, uh, who worked for a financial investment company, but got into debt. Uh, and they all receive these invites in the form of a card that has now become more or less a meme uh, saying, hey, why don't you come play this game? Or, you know, And they come, they don't know much about it. They're gassed, uh, very reminiscent of the Japanese Battle Royale film, right? They're gassed on the way to the arena and they don't know what's going to go on except they have a number, they have their identity photo taken. I think the photo of the protagonist, the big smiling, wonderful photo uh, of the actor Lee Jung-jae uh, has you know, really kind of surfed across the internet and uh, for good reason, because he has this giant smile because they don't know what's coming, right? And the next thing you know, they're playing a game that in English is red light, green light. Um, but from what I understand in Korean is actually the name of the national flower. And I don't remember the name off the top of my head, I'll be honest, um, but offers it a certain significance. So yeah, so that's kind of the setup. And then they play to the death in a series of games that range from tug of war uh, to a series of traditional Korean games. I don't think have necessarily analogies um, in an English speaking context, or at least I didn't necessarily recognize them. Although in some cases I recognize versions of them. I'm stuck, I have to be honest, I'm stuck on the tug of war uh, game, which seemed to offer a kind of like dramatic climax, at least in the action side of things, um, besides the final game. But yeah, what am I missing in the plot that stood out to folks? Well, um, I mean, you bring up the tug of war, and I think that one of the things that the show does, and I think was new to a lot of people, is that um, it very explicitly um, kind of dramatizes the the metagame notion that, um, and you see that from the very the very first game too, um, in the sense that you know there's the kind of obvious um, way to win or compete in the game, but then there are these other sort of um, embedded strategies, whether it's, you know, when Ali kind of um, grabs and holds Kihun, so there's the, the helping, you know, the aid, but there's also the sabotaging when, you know, people are pushing one another, and you see that with, with Tug of War, too, where it's not only is there the immediate sort of just strength-focused game, but then comes in all these, like, levels of strategy. And, and that's where um, Sangu's kind of um, educational pedigree really comes into play. And I think that that's one of those dimensions that the, that the show captures really well. And I think a really important interlocutor for, for Squid Game is um, there was a reality TV show um, that, was, that was also a game show on, on um, 
uh, I think it's TVN, one of the cable uh, channels. It was called Genius Game. And that was another show that I think not only like Squid Game is clearly kind of indebted to, but even if you look at the sort of look and style and design of, of Genius Game, you can see how it's indebted to violent Korean cinema. And you see how much violent Korean cinema in the 2000s and especially old boy have sort of proliferated throughout Korean media. Um, uh, and, and so for example, there are a lot of things just to kind of very quickly, um, the kind of way that the hosts are, are, are sort of um, anonymous and, and kind of ominous, they, they get that. Well, that's, in, that's present in Genius Game. But Genius Game was very much about every it's that there are multiple ways to play the game and multiple ways to win the game and oftentimes the competitors that would do well were the ones that were being able to, that were able to find the kind of tricks which you see on the glass the the the, the glass bridge uh, uh game as well when when the the one person who had spent um 33 years in a, in a glass factory was able to tell the difference um, and there are moments in genius game that that kind of come from that but that i think taps into a broader sort of sentiment in kind of Korean gamic culture itself um, and this sort of, you know, kind of constant competing, but also this sort of very um, mindful, intellectual, crafty sort of competing, which to me, it's like one, one dimension that I think that doesn't really get talked about too much is that it's not just that the, the, the show is talking about children's games, it's talking about the relationship between children's games and education, because those two things are sort of really intensely tied in, in, in the South Korean context. And so in the same way that, that you know, grown adults and children are strategizing to, to sort of, you know, to win these games, you see that same sort of culture in education itself, where especially in, in like the after school cram culture, where, where you know, these, the, the cram instructors and lectures are not just like teaching students, um, like straightforward, like arithmetic or math or whatever, they're actually teaching them how to take the tests and the little strat. So there's like this kind of giant sort of um, industry based precisely on the kind of metagaming. Um, and that's one of the things that I think stood out for me because it's it, in, you know, because because those sort of same strategies are obviously like in play in, in, in PUBG and Fortnite. And, and you see them, I think, in a little bit of a different effect to Battle Royale, but it's not quite in, in the original film. It's not quite at the level of metagaming quite yet so much as more sort of the exploration of the fact that like people are going to play this very differently and that there are very different ways to play the game. One of the things that strikes me there too is I wonder if some of the popularity within the US in particular of Squid Game doesn't have to do with the way in which the US has become sort of like fantastically obsessed with Asia, you know, in the kind of like general ideological sort of fantasy sense of that term, East Asia in particular, China, South Korea, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, as sites of like economic competition and education, right? And you're seeing the kind of the helicopter parent and those that kind of test prep and cramming. I don't know if it's to the same degree as it is, for example, in South Korea, uh, but I imagine it's getting there, especially among sort of upper middle class and uh, wealthy families in the US. Um, and I, I wonder if some of what's happening is that those like fantasies about what Asia represents about the future and the way in which, um, you know, the US, I mean, you have to look at Joe Biden's sort of economic policies and the way in which he wants to do this pivot to China. And, and uh, so I don't want to go too far abroad there, but I think there's something about 
that notion of the meta that makes us have to think about the way in which a game's not just a game, right? Like, or there's gaming, but there's also trying to game a system, right? And so that incorporation of the meta there, um, you know, which gets really perversely blurred in that moment where they turn the lights off uh, in the dorm rooms, right? So there's that sort of structural separation. You have the dorm rooms and the game room. Right. And it's like going to the arcade. You play games at the arcade and you go back and you sleep. This is an arcade where some people don't survive, though. Uh, but they, they turn that on its head at one moment uh, by turning the lights off where they know some people will die and a number of people do. Uh, and all of this is part of the meta. People are deciding, OK, do we want women on our sort of in our cliques, right, that we're going to have. There's a kind of gender politics dimension there that also gets sort of flipped in various ways at points. Uh, and so that notion of, you know, the meta of metagaming of how we think about the game and how that plays into strategy or tactics is really interesting there. And I think it was a lot of the sort of appeal of the show. Um, yeah, that's so, what do you think? Anything else in the plot and specifically or context you wanna bring in? Yeah, so thinking back on the games and it's really interesting thinking about it too, cause, um, for example, lots of the plot development during the Honeycomb game, um, before and after, for example. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I really like um, Kang's character a lot, for example, because she was like really resourceful. Even after she chose to come back in the games, like she brought a knife prepared, um, she knew she was gonna get gassed and she prepared for that. So it's like this mentality that she wanted to gain as much advantage in the next games as possible. And of course, she had a reason, like seeing her little brother, for example, um, and other source. But it was really interesting, like those moments where lots of the different, um, the game, what are the game strategies are happening? Like her kind of like discovering like what's, what any hint of the next game. And we see them like cooking a bunch of stuff and preparing for the honeycombs, for example. Um, then we found out the other narrative of the doctor and the, um, and the um, organs, for example, like how he got information in exchange for his services and kind of like that importance of like making allies just to survive and then temporarily until they get to the next game. So I found like those inner plots extremely interesting for the game's development too, especially the different strategies at the moment within the game. Um, some people like trying to like um, basically dig on the honeycomb little by little, for example, some people just trying to do a straight line. Um, and also, I thought it was really smart how Han, for example, um, how she had her lighter and basically burned her needle just to make it easier. Because um, in her case, she chose the star shape, which was another complicated shape in the game. Um, when thinking about like how long would it take to like pass a honeycomb game and basically get the shape out quickly as you can. So I thought that was a really smart strategy too and kind of like, the, dyna the power dynamics went in and as well, like not only there, but also after in sense of making allies just to survive. Cause again, they're up in a situation where it's high competition, but they're also constantly thinking of the reward and the money and the giant um, piggy bank that's on the ceiling in the sleeping quarters. So I thought those transitions were extremely interesting. Another game that I really caught my attention was the marbles game, because I kept thinking of agency in the way that you know, it was a constant negotiation between the two players of what game they were going to play within those 30 minutes. So that's one moment within the games where they got to choose, like, 
and agree upon what game they were playing to decide the fate of one another and basically that exchange um, between the marbles and it was a very emotional episode for many reasons especially how you know um, basically the different betrayals that happened the kind of like renegotiation like when one player was losing oh let's switch up the game to make it fair but actually just to give both players that same level ground advantage um and again Kang and Jin's story was really compelling in that series because it was really emotional because it's one moment where that character we got to see her vulnerability in a giant way but at the same time it was like these thoughts of a possible future that, hey, if we get out of here, let's be friends, we're going to hang out and stuff. But knowing that that's not going to happen and the way it ended, I don't know, emotionally crushed me in many reasons, but it it was also so good the way that that particular game opened up so many different emotional levels um, within that same game. I think one of the things that the show does really well, and I, there's a couple of things maybe just to talk about why it works so well as a television show, but one of the things it does so well is reversing the expectations from game to game. So there's that moment in the show where they realize, oh, we should start ganging up with one another. We should start pairing up based on who we think, you know, will help us the most. And then you hit the game of marbles. And of course, only one person gets to walk away from that, right? So the expectations get reversed there. Uh, another way in which I think a television show aspect really helps is you do get all of these different social contexts brought in. It's not just about capitalism or it's just about capitalism only insofar as capitalism is actually a pretty big thing that's pretty complex. So you get the Pakistani immigrant, right? Uh, who's a wonderful character and really you know, makes you think about the fact that South Korea is not an ethnically homogenous place, right? And, um, you get uh, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Saibyuk is, also from North Korea, right? She's a quote unquote defector, uh, as is her brother, and she's motivated by wanting to bring, uh, I believe it's her mother who's still alive and her father that died in trying to come to South Korea. And so there's this dimension there of reminding folks, look, like the Korean War is technically never ended, right? And there's still this dimension of conflict uh, that's present. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, there's these games that kind of structure the central line of that show, but then there's these subplots that weave in and out of them. And I'm curious if there's any subplot in particular that folks thought was especially notable. Or maybe a context that you think that just needs to be brought up. Um. So Wan Yu Ho's um, incorporation in the entire series, um, basically discovering what happened to his brother and the detective work and all, and all the, basically his involvement within the series, even though he wasn't part of the game, he was very much a participant incorporated in some level when the facilities and kind of finding out how the facilities work for his investigation was really interesting as well because that's not really a perspective we would have gotten, um, at least me as a viewer of the series in its completeness without having someone like checking the behind the scenes of what's happening um, when the facilities um, with all the people involved in it and kind of like 
these kind of like sub hints as well. Because one thing they found interesting at the end of the Honeycomb game, for example, when we had that one player um, basically taking one of the um, one of the other person like as a hostage to kind of like try to save himself and then asking him to take off his mask. And we have this um, young man behind the mask. I thought that that was like this inner plot that, oh, so maybe Lhasa, since we don't know the identity of any of the triangle, square, or circle um, minions, to say, um, just to put in a better term, um, I, I thought that was like this hidden plot that, well, maybe maybe this organization or whatever is taking control of the, like, I don't know, took a bunch of young children and kind of like molded them into soldiers for the purpose of the Squid Game. Um, so I, I was just thinking of like um, different kinds of theories as I was discussing from that one point of the game, for example. But then we find out that um, other minions like had like, you know, um, as a black market and organs, for example, like they have personalities and other like agendas within the Squid Game itself. So it's like, okay, so that theory I thought was like debunked fast, but it kept me thinking about other possibilities that are not really that mentioned when the series like kind of like thinking of the structure or how this came to be or like how did the Squid Game started um, or how, you know, just thinking about like capital money and all these resources and like all the people involved, um, basically betting, especially at the end with all um, the people with money betting on these humans' lives, for example. Like, I just wanted to know more of the series in that sense. Um, hopefully, there's a season two. We'll get more of a sense of what's happening more. Um, even though there's lots of articles saying that there are possibilities of season two, but if there isn't, it's like okay too as a standalone. But I don't know. I just keep wanting more as a viewer in that sense because I keep thinking about like lots of the um, holes that are left in the narrative, so to speak. Right. So one of the just the context here is that this is a global entertainment product for the super rich, right? The really, really rich 1%, let's say. Uh, so that it wasn't quite clear to me either it pours from year to year in a different place or what seems to me more likely is that there's multiple occasions that it's happening in, uh, in different places. And so in South Korea is one of the regular stops on the circuit, as it were. Um, and like you said, it's all there are people that bet on it, the sort of super rich, uh, you know, that bet on it. Uh, and you know, it's interesting how they code the super rich. They use that old, old trope that goes back to at least the 18th century of sexual perversity as a way of framing what it means to be rich, which I, I will admit rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. Uh, but it, it is very much an old trope. Uh, and there's a there's an employment hierarchy, right? Uh, I had a hard time not thinking of the PlayStation, the PlayStation Corporation, uh, you know, Sony, uh, because of the use of the square uh, circle and triangle. They, they notably did not use the X because I feel like at that point they would be risking a trademark loss. <laughs> uh, but there was a kind of nice little nod there but i'm curious seth uh what stood out about the setup to you do you feel like it distinguished itself from some of the other kind of battle royale television and comics um coming out of south korea and japan do you feel like the setup was more or less the same just with some tweaks um it stood out for me in that 
um, in 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 the way that it's it's it uh, that it that it pastiches, um, and I think the moment that it really clicked was the robot from from the first game um, has kind of I think really really sort of been a striking image for a lot of people that's one of the the the, the things that you that we've seen get memed kind of extensively but especially in the way that the the eye the camera eyes move immediately for me that that invoked um the japanese comic book and then later both live action and animated series gants where they're similarly kind of bizarre um uh, creatures. They're they're aliens, but some of them are robotic aliens that have those sort of jarring movements. And I'm sure there are other analogies. Similarly, like the twist in in the Marvel game when it's revealed that they're not actually partnering up, but but going against one another. Um, that in that kind of brought to mind. There's a similar plot twist. I think is also a comic book and then into a film in Azumi, um, where they train together. They're brought up as assassins, so they, they live together, their family, and then at the at the very end, the last test is they have to kill each other. So again, like another sort of post battle royale narrative. I think I've seen memes about how this stuff is coming clearly not only out of PlayStation, but that it that it's. Um, it, it, I think the meme I saw was something to the effect of like, well, that um, uh, live action Among Us is really crazy. But then even going back to. Um, uh, thinking about the sort of big reveal at the end of who the game's creator is, um, and it happens to be Ilnam. But that entire sequence, I think, is almost um, directly borrowed from Old Boy down to the structure, the reveal, the musical choices. Um, but also, you know, and this goes back to your other question, your previous question, the kind of contextual historical anxiety and contempt for um, you know the South Korean uber rich the the, the Chebol conglomerates um, which is exactly the kind of shadow economy that fuels old boy it's the same thing that that Ujin this um, kind of mysteriously um, internationally wealthy industrialist can play can kind of instantiate this very twisted game for his own sort of resentful needs um, uh, I, I know there are other stuff. Um, oh, and I think that even just the aesthetic of the um, of the tracksuits invokes uh, again, like more South Korean reality TV, um, specifically the really popular show Running Man. Um, so, so for me, it was you know, funnily enough, and and again, it just because it it kind of dovetails so nicely into my research, but sort of picking out those pieces and how they kind of aggregate into this sort of you know, text that sort of, it feels like all of these little things have contributed into this, what has now become this global phenomenon. The similar way that I think the parasite walks in, you know, again, the footsteps of, of not only Bong his own work, but, but his contemporaries work as well. It's really interesting to hear. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it, even though it's frankly pretty obvious, uh, the connection to reality television show and the dominance of reality television starting in the early 2000s and I think only taking off following the financial recession, both because of budget constraints uh, within film and television production, but also just because frankly, it's very profitable. And I think we just love, I think we love, and I'm using we really loosely here, but I think we love two things. One is, I think we enjoy that fantasy that you could just win, right? That you could win it all, right? That you could be the one. Uh, but I also think we just 
are nobody's immune to that bit of sadistic enjoyment uh, that comes with seeing somebody lose, right? That comes with seeing somebody not make it because maybe we can imagine that there's a kind of justification there. We can rationalize it and in rationalizing it, we can make the economic world in which we inhabit uh, make sense, right? I, I do think there's actually something there's at least a question about the degree to which Battle Royale games in particular, but also a television show like Squid Game, even as it's has this really kind of critical dimension, doesn't also in turning things into a game also just kind of clean up the edges a bit uh, and imagine economic life to be maybe a little bit neater than it even is. Um, although I think one of the nice things about the meta being incorporated and us seeing the different parts of their lives is seeing how messy things get, right? It's seeing how much chance can happen. Even the guy that goes to SNU, right? Even the guys that goes to Seoul National University, it's incredibly hard to get into university. And I've, I frequently teach students that come from SNU and the grad program I'm in and you know, they're always really good and they're always really driven, right? Uh, and, you know, just like the character in the show that went to SNU and he's known for going to SNU, he's, he's driven clearly. He's like, by the end of the show, he's like managing his own little team. Um, but he doesn't make it, right? Uh, he almost makes it, but he doesn't. And there's this element of chance or contingency that is a part of games, but also escapes the rules of the game that I think is really interesting to think about when we talk about battle royales there was, a, there was a high school yearbook picture that went viral and incidentally it was of an asian american or or, or asian national student um, an immigrant student and the quote was it's not enough for me to win others must lose and i do think in the same way that parasite um you know old boy didn't hit in the way that parasite hit you know, in 2004, as opposed to 2019, and Fortnite and PUBG appear. You know, again in the in the tail end of the 2010s, battle royale didn't hit in the U.S. in the way that it did, I think, in in Korea in in early 2000s, precisely because I think you know, for for Japan, it was the collapse of the bubble economy. For Korea, it was the it was the it was the financial crisis, and then in the U.S., you, you, we had to have the housing collapse in 2008 happen for us to really start to feel the effects of you know, where we are economically. And I think, again, what these texts are really kind of tapping into so well, and, and that's why I think it, it's, it's the, like, you know, Asia is speaking to a more general broad kind of experience is, is the zero sum game where it's like more increasingly, you know, this, this sort of intense feeling that um, there are a limited number of spots um, and, and, you know, we we're all competing for them and that things that counted 30 40 50 years ago which is something like um uh, 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 an educational pedigree um an ivy league education they they don't they don't count in the way right and we know for a fact that things are more contingent and more arbitrary and not necessarily a meritocracy so i do think there's something to be said about the fact that you know i don't know it, I, I guess this is just a uh, uh, speculation, but I wonder if 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the idea that it was that things are not, you know, meritocratous would be like a popular idea. But now I don't think that's really anything that's that scandalous. And and I think if anything, everyone has direct experience 
with being passed over and 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 for example like you know i think to to most a lot of people especially you know a lot of uh 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 people in korea or or or, or the diaspora a lot would say like in a situation like this a Seoul national Uni- university graduate would win because of these sort of classic values but you know the show kind of turns that on its head right yeah i always think of uh you know there's a several philosophers that I think have talked about this, folks like Peter Sloterdijk and uh, Slavoj Žižek and stuff about how we've gone to this moment in which we're, ideology doesn't work because we don't know something. Ideology works because we're cynical in a certain yeah, sense, right? It's like, we we know very well, but all the same, right? Like we know that the meritocracy is bullshit. We know that it's not the best person. We had George W. Bush as a president. Everybody knew he was a C student with a Yale degree and became a president, right? And like, we know it's not meritocratic. Um, and, yet, yeah. and yet, right? Like we still are like, he graduated from SNU, right? He graduated from Harvard, Yale. Right. We want so badly to have some kind of system in place that would make it make sense, that would make it work, right? Because otherwise, what are we left with? We're either left with like the blocked possibility or, you know, that old Fred Jameson line um, that he's not even sure he wrote. Uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Uh or we're left with just like competing unabashedly and doing whatever we need to do to get ahead. And neither of those seem like very good options, like an imagination of nothing or like the grind, right? The ultra grind or whatever it is. And I do think on some level, that's why one of the things that I think Squid Game does differently from these other texts is that I do think that ideologically it kind of hedges or sort of shores up precisely the idea that, yeah, things are terrible, but you can kind of still there, you know, which goes back to your earlier point of what, what, you know, games or fiction kind of cleaning things up and sanitizing them, even um, the sort of vulgar obscenity of actually being, you know, being a laborer in the 21st century that, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I think that's part of the role of the, that the melodrama is playing, but if you think about um, where that that final game between Ilnam and and Kihun, which I think is you know the the kind of in conversation with the Dark Knight, but they come to the same conclusion, right? It's like no, we can, you know, humanity will get us out of this, and and it sets up again this kind of dramatic you know superhero return to the second game that you know Kihun is you know um, will be the arbiter of justice, and I think that that's why one of the reasons that. Um, Honestly, I think that the show becomes a little bit more accessible because it is a little bit more palatable in this sense, but Battle Royale and Old Boy reach very different conclusions. And I think even PUBG, the the you know, um, the 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 experience of winning PUBG, I think is not the same as the experience of winning, you know, Squid Game. Because here there's still the kind of notion that's like, because uh Ilnam even says, right, well, you deserve this, you earn this. So it's still the meritocracy is still there, right? The right person won. Like, you know, it's a, if we imagine a counterfactual narrative, how would we have felt if Sangu won? I think that's an interesting narrative, you know. How would we have felt if one of the actors or the, or the glass factory laborer or Minya or Doksu or any of the other characters won? I think, it, I think it, it does something very different. I think that's a great point. And I do think it's funny because the more I sit with the ending, the sort of less I like the ending, even as I, I immediately found it compelling. And and I, of course, I love seeing uh, Lee Jung-ye like 
in his suit, right? Like, I, you know, how could you not, right? Yeah. He's got the best smile ever. He has got the best pissed off face look ever. And seeing him swagger sort of still a little beat up uh, in that suit, you know, Arbiter of Justice, if you put it, Seth, which I think is a great way of putting it, you know, Dark Knight style, um, he's going to Bruce Wayne it up or something, uh, is like, it's a wonderful thing to imagine. But of course, it is like pulling the punch a little bit, right? right. As opposed to say the that opening scene of or one of the opening sequences of Battle Royale, where you see the smile of the winner, you know, <laughs> like, there, there's no mercy there, right? There's nothing redeeming there. There's no sympathetic identification that's easily left by the end of that movie um even old boy i think hits a little harder in that respect uh but, but there is some hope here right there is something hopeful and, and i do think that maybe from a positive note that maybe not being cynical is also a hard thing to do um and i think the show might be too optimistic by the end although i have to admit that in um uh i don't remember the name of the actor who plays him uh but boy what a role what a what an actor just at the moment of glee he's having at the beginning when he's playing um you know that initial game the red light green light uh game and he's just thrilled and he's kind of showing everybody else what to do and of course he knows what to do because he helped run everything uh as you see at the end but there's also something there about like I was left kind of liking him at the end in a way that made me feel really uncomfortable and I don't know if that's the show's success or maybe a little bit of a failing and I'm not I'm not sure and so how did you feel about the ending how did you feel about you know oh oh gosh like lots of emotions with that ending well in that last episode I I really like the transition how they started with the final game because it was like that tension from episode eight, just starting episode nine, like, oh, who's going to win? What's going to happen? Um, and some of the other things we've mentioned now. But uh, with, with Jiyeon's perspective, like, I don't know. I felt really, it was like an emotional roller coaster because I felt really sad for him because, you know, at the end, like, he won, but at the cost of, like, you know, one of his closest childhood friends dying um and basically the people he's met and all these friendships and connections he's built during the same game that's all gone now um after coming back to the real world his mom having died and basically losing everything he was fighting for basically or planning to use the money for so it was really interesting how even with all the money now um he still lived like he lived before like just using the minimum um living if he was still in poverty even though he's not so I found that like transition of lifestyle very interesting too and kind of like not motivated to like go seek out his daughter um at that point well well, I mean at the end it was like okay good he's gonna go get his daughter like he planned to but then it was like okay let's go back to the game and I'm like oh no (laughs) what's gonna happen now and you know I, I was thinking like well I guess now he's playing, he's like playing the hero trope now, like trying to like dismantle this horrible system because it was interesting because even in transition of going to the airport, he saw that same guy that recruited him by playing that, by playing that first game outside, um, um, that game where you uh, flip a paper by hitting it. 
um and basically telling the other guy like don't do it trust me and kind of like seeing all the trauma that he has inside and kind of like processing i have to stop this this isn't right um so i liked it because it really builds up that you know this series is gonna continue but it's also like well i guess their goals all i get well, I guess the dollar will have to wait like a long time until he sees um, her father then because <laughs> I don't know. I also I also felt bad in different reasons because with the situation was presented before and it was pretty interesting the kind of dynamics he had like with his ex-wife, um, the dollar's um, stepdad, for example, like the ex-wife admitting that she steals money from her husband. So that kind of like gives us a taste of like home family in a way. And kind of like also how that's like monitored in a way. But I also like um, Ji Hyun's character development a lot during the series because like not accepting the money from the staff that, for example, like, you know, I have value. And like, I don't know, I just liked his character a lot throughout the series and basically everything that he contributed throughout the games and other characters too, making those connections, which kind of, I don't know, I was just really depressed at the end for many reasons, but then it was like, okay, there's still hope, not the way I expected, but it's happening. <laughs> and I guess that's how we're rolling with it. Yeah, I appreciate that, Edsel. Whereas, whereas I was like, there's too much hope at the end of this. You were like, give me some hope, which I think is a good sort of like, I wouldn't call it quite a Rorschach uh, test, you know, but I would say that it does speak to like the different kind of expectations we can have for these kinds of things, you know, and it's worth noting that there's a confluence of, you know, I, it's, you know, we should probably mention Hunger Games exists and is a thing. Uh, and so I, I do think we're also coming to this with, also, you know, these kinds of genre expectations of there has to be some kind of way to you know, have redemption here that I think a lot of, and I'll, you know, defer to Seth as the expert here, but I'll, the South Korean cinema I've seen uh, seems to have less of a problem than a lot of American cinema just letting go of that redemption, at least with fictions that touch on economic issues. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth noting here that These kinds of games, you know, the, the games in the most general sense are occurring in the economy as well as within the split game itself, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's this term that gets used, well, it gets used a lot by marketing, but it's also been taken up in academic game studies as a critical term, and that's gamification, right? So for marketers, gamification is this thing we should incorporate in all aspects of our life because it's a way of incorporating sort of financial transactions into a kind of meritocratic view of ourselves, right? So running apps that track your running and give you little like, you know, kind of stars or whatever, when you have a really good day, the Apple Watch has this kind of gamified quality to it as well. Uh, there are financial trading applications that do this, um, including the one that was famously now associated with the GameStop uh, stock spike. Um, but gamification is also just a term that folks like Mackenzie Work and Patrick Jagoda have used to talk about uh, the way in which so much of our lives uh, have been turned into this kind of like zero-sum game of winners and losers, uh, of ranking and scoring, and of thinking of ourselves in terms of like players playing a game. And that might mean like stealing money out of your husband's wallet on occasion to get ahead a little bit, right? Or it might mean um, gambling right and betting on horses and having a good you know run at the horse 
uh, race, um, only to have it, of course, taken away by a lone shark. And it, you know, I think the presence of lone sharks is interesting here because it's part of the shadow economy that we don't like to acknowledge exists. Notably, um, I'm more familiar as I'm one of my research specialties is finance in the U.S. And so I'm familiar with the history of finance in the U.S. And, you know, the introduction of personal loans, the legal um, mechanism doesn't happen until the early 20th century in the 1920s. Before that, loan sharks were very much a part of working class life. And they still are, but they're more buried in the shadows since personal loans with collateral obligations have become more common and you can get those from banks. But loan sharks still exist. And I think that that violence is already lurking in these people's lives. Multiple characters. We don't know all the characters' backgrounds, but certainly um, at least two of the main characters have the threat of loan sharks either killing them or breaking their kneecaps as something that's already lurking in our existence, which is part of what makes the game, if not attractive, then at least maybe not seem that much worse in everyday life. I think this economic dimension is sort of undeniably important in the show and this way in which gamification has become part of our lives. I mean, I think that, you know, um, I think gamification or the process of gamification sort of actualizes something that's already there or, 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 or codifies it or gives it more structure because, you know, capitalism itself at its core, it like requires competition. It, it, it requires precisely um, someone to get the short end of the stick. And that's one of the things that, that we see in, in the show that, because I think I was thinking about this and especially going again back to, because a lot of people are focusing on the childhood game dimension. And then I realized, well, you know, in the US we play games with children too, but the difference between South Korea and, and the US is that I think a lot of that energy, that adolescent and childhood energy gets funneled into organized sports and, and extracurricular activities. Whereas with, with South Korea, there's just so little time um, that, 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 that young children and young, young people are afforded towards other activities that it becomes a lot more sort of um, uh, kind of chaotic even um, or, or much more contingent. Um, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's a lot of these more kind of unorganized or more, more sort of um, games that are structured by the children themselves. Like just a very quick example, middle schools and, and, and high schools generally have very long um, uh, rest break times between classes, like 10 minutes. So during that time, a lot of kids will spend time playing games. And a lot of the games they play when they hit middle school and, and high school is actually gambling games. So one of the marble games that they play, which is the one where you guess, um, you grab marbles and you guess even or odd, that's a very popular game amongst boys schools because you know, we have all boys and all, all girls schools. Conversely, they talk about the game, they, they mention a game, then you never see it, but they mention a game like Gongi, which is more popular with, with, with girls. But you see you know, in, in South Korean schools and then in South Korean kind of um, society, because I was talking to a colleague about this because we were trying to wrap our heads around, just think very seriously about Korean game culture. A lot of that kind of then sort of gets um, translated into college and drinking games, but but then you know by the time you hit the workforce um, after college, it's you're just very used to playing games, and so gamification I don't think really fits totally because people have always always been playing games. Maybe it fits in the sense that now you see it in in things like you're talking about, like apps or or, or institutional structures themselves, like you know colleges, like actually now. Uh, officially sort of um, 
promoting gaming amongst their yeah i guess like if you think about colleges that have esports programs right that that would be a key example but i think a very good example of this happens at the very end not only again that 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 gambling which is both simultaneously really prevalent in the country but also like this huge social problem um is the final game between ilnam and 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 kihun in the sense that it's like anything can be turned into a game let's bet on this person and see if they're going to be rescued and also that there is a clear economic dimension to it which is that you know like like especially in the korean context again like games and money are almost sort of like really closely and intrinsically tied that that the stakes get immediately you know kind of raised uh so it's that twofold thing that you can turn anything into a game and people often do and you can turn anything to a game for for real um stakes that's a great point and i think i really appreciate that specificity because i'm a little familiar with the japanese sort of game culture and the figure of the ataku and others but much less with the south korean uh game culture with the exception of the predominance of uh starcraft and dota uh and just mobas more generally league of legends in particular i believe um but that sense of like yeah i think that you know one of the things you have to think about here is that kind of what happens when you have a national context in which the setup of like work versus leisure is so asymmetrical right and the leisure margin is very thin um in part because certain kinds of uh, ideologies of meritocracy certain kinds of ideas about the rationality of who gets ahead and who doesn't in part because of educational culture and things like that and um so from what you're describing yeah it's different to gamification in part because there's just this very explicit like place for games um that seems if i'm understanding you correctly Seth, just kind of squeezed into other parts of life squeezed into work life squeezed into school life yeah um, absolutely and that direct attachment to money, I think, is really important. I thought it was great that they got the, you know, the guy from, um, oh, what is that movie? Uh, uh, Train of Busan uh, as the recruiter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I just assumed he would come back. And he does come back, but only for a second. And in such a haunting moment as well, when you see another person getting recruited, uh, and he just runs across the train tracks to get to him. And, and that just, I mean, that they had to get that actor for his smile. Uh, Gong Yu, I believe, is a stage name. Uh, just that wonderful smile he has. And he's just like, you know, they got a good looking actor with a wonderful smile to be the recruiter. Uh, and the smacks and everything. And that just that, that chain of physical violence, games, um, aesthetic appeal attraction everything is just so densely uh sort of integrated into that scene of recruitment right i'm going to open up a briefcase my briefcase is going to contain money and a game i'm going to give you this chance to get the money anyways and then i'm going to give you a card with three out of four of the buttons of a playstation controller on them and Everything's going to go off from there. And that card, the way in which that functions as like a signifier, a symbol of everything that's happening in the show um, is great. Um, we should wrap up, but I wanted to just get kind of last thoughts on the show. Uh, maybe a couple of questions we could think about are, uh, would you like to see a second season? And 
what would you like to see other kinds of media take away from this show or learn from the show or maybe just other kinds of media riffing on the battle royale do in general um yeah i, I guess i can get us started i don't know just because of some of the unanswered questions i still have and think about <laughs> every day um it's funny because I really want to watch the series again because I was talking to some of my colleagues, like some of like some of us watched it in English, some in Korean. So I definitely want to rewatch this. So rewatch the show in Korean just to feel like the kind of difference in translation and difference in theme as well, just to get that feel too. And kind of like think over like what were exactly the questions that I still have related to some of the MTE plot points. But it's also funny because on Twitter, like, there's this huge argument that, you know, lots of people are comparing Squidward to Hunger Games, um, thinking of the Western perspective, and then people are like, no, Battle Royale is the original genre, and kind of like these big arguments, like, whether it's Battle Royale or Hunger Games, but I find that really interesting in many ways, but thinking of Hunger Games, it also reminded me of, like, those catchphrases that really got me thinking about this each series, like in Hunger Games, like, Happy Hunger Games and may the odds be ever in your favor, for example. And then how in Squid Games, it's like um, how the Game Masters basically reminded people that this space was created to give you a second chance in life or a second opportunity. Um, and it's kind of like thinking back of the main reason why these games were created, or at least that narrative that they led their players to believe, um, kind of like a way to keep going in the games. Because another thing that I found interesting is that not all the players that passed through the first game um, decided to come back, but they were still monitoring those players in case of like, you know, if they started to gather a new cohort of people to keep playing the games. Because again, um, since they have like betters and lots of money involved within these um, events, um, they still want to have people that are willing to partake in these games and kind of like keep this dynamic going. But it also made me think a lot, too, about, like, how in Hunger Games, it was, like, so media-focused, like, basically prepping these players, uh, making body modifications so these players can look good and presenting them um, and celebrating them that they're partaking these year's games before, well, whatever happens to them, they get eliminated. And then here in Squid Games, it's more of a private sphere that you know, nobody really knows what happened to these people and, well, except the ones who survived and basically carry that trauma with them. So I really like these different themes that I'm picking up from this kind of genre within film and just comparing like, you know, Hunger Games, Battle Royale and Squid Games as a whole. So those are just some of my final thoughts on it. Yeah, that's great. I love that emphasis on chance and hope and the way in which chance sometimes seems like it's our only hope maybe odds be in your favor the marbles and the simple sort of odds versus evens uh you know they just gambling on our future as it were right there's a reason why phrases like casino economy even if they're not always totally accurate are still really useful for thinking critically about financial recession and the financial crisis, you know, 2008 and after, um, and just more generally about our rigged economy, as it were. Seth? Yeah, I mean, exactly in that regard, um, I would like for everyone who's, whether it's the producers and, and trying to, they're, you know, making the sequel or anyone who else is trying to kind of capitalize on this moment, um, 
there are a lot of eyeballs on this and a lot of people talking about um, kind of, you know, what, what, what the show is doing, similar to Squid, you know, not Squid, to Parasite. Um, I would like to see more sustained, um, kind of more serious and, 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 and intense kind of investigations into, into what it means to, you know, to, to be a, a player or, or a user or alive in the 21st century and, and what the experience of neoliberal capitalism actually entails. And I think one of the things, this is my final thought, one of the things that, because both of you kind of brought to attention the fact that one of the things that the show does is the opt-out clause, right? Um, and that is a specificity that I think analogous would be, you know, when you kind of quit out of, of a game of PUBG or Fortnite or, or uninstall, even, you know, people even joke about like, I'm uninstalling this game. That is, that is a form of, of, of choosing to, to not participate. But the other side of it is that so many people do kind of willingly kind of come back, right? And you see that in Battle Royale as well with, with, with Kazuo, who's the returning competitor. And Elam makes the same point, right? And I think it's an incredibly important point where he says, I didn't force anyone to play the game. Of course, there's, it's, it's kind of a light coercion, right? He doesn't, you're not really clear what's happening. You don't know that the stakes are that high, but that kind of hegemonic dimension, you know, of, of, the, of, of, by, of the cultural hegemony by consent, right? That we ourselves are, are, are participating, again, mostly because of cynical ideology. I think that's something absolutely that I want to see kind of picked up really emphatically in, 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 in future media um, that, that takes up these sort of things. Because we have an opportunity, right, um, to talk about this on a very big scale. And which is why, you know, I appreciate being invited on, on the podcast as well. So thank you for having me, guys. Oh, yeah. No, it's great having you. And I guess the last thing I'll add, you know, two things. One, I'm not sure if I want another season or not. If, I, if they're going to do another season... I want some kind of weird twist at the very beginning that maybe makes it less about some kind of pursuit of justice. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, to be quite honest. Um, the other thing I'll say is what I would like to see from this, I guess, is more in the gaming sphere. I would love to see some attempt to incorporate some kind of critical reflection on capitalism within the battle royale gaming genre, right? Um, I don't know what that looks like. Um, I'm somebody who sort of regularly plays uh, games, indie games that do focus to some degree on like critiques of capitalism and not, you know, there are big ones, obviously, like Disco Elysium are relatively big. Uh, I think Sweary's game, The Good Life is coming out later this week, which bills itself as a life and debt simulator. Um, and I I think I have a code in one of my email boxes, so I need to probably get on that. Uh, but I, I would just love to see some way of integrating some thinking about the ill effects of certain kinds of competition within the battle royale genre. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know if that's some kind of reconciliation of cooperative elements with critical elements. I don't know. Uh, but I would, I would love to see what that might look like. I would love to see some kind of uh enterprising game designer do that uh but that's it so yes seth and ed salt thanks so much uh for being on the show and uh